We're grateful, Father, for the fact that uh, we have just come through Easter. And uh, that's the whole basis of our faith. If, if there's no resurrection, Paul said, we are fools. We've been conned. We've been duped. Uh, it's, it, we're just playing games. It's just one big ice cream social. But we are so grateful that Christ came and that he was born of a virgin and that he lived a sinless life and that he went to that cross for each one of us He went to that cross for Tom, and he was our substitute, and he paid for our sins. That, that, is, that is staggering. And we are so grateful for what he did for us. But if it had have ended there, it wouldn't have made any difference in our lives. But three days later, he came out of that tomb. And they saw him. And on one occasion, over 500 saw him at one time and talked with him and touched him and interacted with him. He was alive. And then he ascended to heaven, and they saw that. And he's at the right hand of the Father, and he lives forever to make intercession for us. And we're all going through different things. We know what the Hickmans are going through right now, and Christ is praying for them. Others of us are going through different things that are hard and that are difficult. I have some guys in here that are facing the greatest challenge of their entire life. And that may be the guy sitting next to us, and we don't know a thing about it. But you know all about it, Lord. And we are grateful that Jesus is praying for that man in that challenge. We're not here by ourselves. And even when evil happens and even when evil occurs J Joseph said to his brothers you intended it for evil you could have stopped that evil but in your wisdom which we cannot comprehend you chose not to stop that evil and it took Joseph quite a while to get to this point where he was able to say of that evil that God intended it for good you trump everything, Lord, and you rule everything. We do pray for uh, Lisa and for Matt as they walk through this um, time of great loss. Tom was a great man. He was a great husband. Lisa has physical difficulties, and he just flat out took care of her. He, he, he was a godly man. And I remember some of those emails she forwarded on to me, people just talking about what a difference he had made in their lives. Behind the scenes, nobody knew about it. 
but you knew about it. Thank you that he left that legacy to his family. And walk them through every day, Lord, the heartache and the pain. Now, would you encourage us tonight as we open the scriptures? We're a needy group. We may not look needy, but we are. We're just, we're just flat out saying we've got needs, and you know every need. So we look to you to encourage us, to give us the strength we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited about the Rangers. I think this is their year <laughs> to uh, finish last again. I, I don't think it's their year to win it all, but um, I'm semi-excited. But uh, you, you know what? They're coming out of spring training. All these teams are coming out of spring training. It, that's always uh, interesting to me that these, uh, the greatest baseball players in the world go to spring training every year. Remember when Nolan Ryan was, was playing? And uh, he was pitching until what? He was uh, 84, something like that. Guy was unbelievable. He really was unbelievable. Uh, he, he, he was incredibly disciplined. Uh, uh, didn't take steroids. He, he, just, he just worked hard. And one of the things that amazed me about Nolan Ryan is that every year he'd go to spring training. Now, 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 when you're Nolan Ryan, do you really need to go to spring training? But he went. Why is it that these guys who are the greatest baseball players in the world, why is it every year before they play 162 games, they go to spring training for four or five or six weeks or however long it is? Well, they go because they're, they have a purpose in going. And the whole deal around spring training is to work on the fundamentals of the game. That's what it's all about. As many years as they've been playing, they're going to go back and they're going to work on the fundamentals because you can never work on the fundamentals too much or too often. Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi used to be on the same coaching staff. Years ago, they both were coaches for the New York Giants. Um, and the head coach was a guy named Jim Lee Howell. And Charlie Carley was the quarterback. And the running back was Frank Gifford. And uh, Andy Robustelli was the defensive end. If you can remember this, um, you need to get a life. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I remember it. And Landry and Lombardi were both assistant coaches. Nobody knew who these guys were. And then Lombardi had an offer to go coach the Green Bay Packers. Now, here's the thing. Back then, when he had the offer to go coach the Green Bay Packers, the Green Bay Packers were worthless. They were a joke. They're out in the middle of nowhere, and they got this football team and they're getting their tail kicked every time they play. But Lombardi took the job, and when Lombardi got there, he realized he had some guys there that had some athletic ability. But you know what they had to do? They had to get down to fundamentals. In the very first practice, Lombardi calls those guys together, and he looks at them, 
And he grabs a football and he holds it up and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. That's how he started. And it kind of insulted their intelligence. But he was assuming nothing. Because you see, he was going to teach them the game from the ground up. I, I, uh, I was watching one of the uh, 147 uh, football bowl games that occurred. You know how that goes now. There's so many. There used to be just, what, four or five bowls. Now they're, it's just unbelievable. But I, the thing that struck me about this particular game, and I can't even tell you which one it was, but uh, John and Josh were at the house, and we were watching this game. And all of a sudden, I realized something. I, 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 I was watching this defensive team. And I said, hey, I said, hey, you, got, you guys notice something about these, this defense? And they said, what is it? I said, these guys know how to tackle. Watch these guys. These guys actually know how to tackle somebody. They know how to wrap a guy up. You know, there's a concept that if you hit a guy and you wrap up his legs, he's not going anywhere. Now, this is a new concept to a lot of guys who play football. Because they think if they can give him a shoulder or they think, no, you wrap that sucker up and I don't care who he is, you get both his legs and he's not going anywhere and he's going down. That's called a fundamental. Uh, in the Christian life, there are fundamentals. And here's what we're going to do for the next um, six, seven, eight weeks, whatever we got left. We just finished Titus. What we're going to do, the baseball teams are coming out of spring training. We're going into spring training. And what we're going to do over these next few weeks is that we're going to work on some fundamentals of the Christian life. And, and some of this stuff, you're going to say, oh, I know this stuff. Yeah, I know you know it. Oh, I've known this since I was in Sunday school. Yeah, I know you know it. But you know what? We're going to work on it again like Nolan Ryan would go back and work on his pickoff move when he was 42 years old. The, uh, they played a baseball game in Japan. Did you see this on ESPN? They actually play. they sent, I don't even know who was playing, Boston and Oakland. They sent them to Japan to play, and they played the first game. And I caught about two minutes of the highlights on ESPN, and it was very interesting to me because it was basically a tie game, and somebody had a base hit, but the guy running the bases screwed up, coming around second, and they picked him off, and as a result... That team lost the game. Now, that's called a fundamental. And it was, it was really something because when he screwed up coming around second instead of holding up, when he screwed up and got caught and got tagged out, they'd immediately, the director cut to the manager, and the manager's in the dugout, and he sees the guy get tagged out, and the manager goes, oh, my gosh. Because this wasn't a rookie. This is a guy that makes $900 million a week. And he's been playing for a long time. But see, that's a, that is a fundamental of baseball that they teach you when you're 10 years old in Little League. We're going to go over some fundamentals. So tonight, the first fundamental we're going to hit is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. A fundamental and foundational principle of the Christian life is the centrality of the Bible, is the cent centrality of Scripture. Uh, what do we do here? What do we do on a Wednesday night? Well, we call this a Wednesday night Bible study. Well, why are we doing that? Because everything else that we do in the Christian life 
comes out of the Bible. Everything is based on the Bible. Everything is central to the Bible. Now, you got a lot of churches in Texas. you got a lot of churches in Dallas. Uh, you got a lot of churches doing a lot of stuff. But if the foundation of the church is not the Bible, if, if the Bible is not taught, if the Bible is not explained, if, if the Bible is not opened, if the Bible is not applied, if the Bible is not emphasized, you don't have much of a church. And I will tell you this, if those things don't happen, the people who come, and there may be thousands who come, but the people who come are anorexic if the Bible isn't central. They may not look anorexic, but they're anorexic. Uh, anorexia is something that happens to young women. It's a tragic thing that can occur. Uh, for some reason, this gal who's attractive will look in the mirror and think she's overweight, and anyone else would look at her and say, no, she looks just fine. But you, you, you've heard about this and you know about it. Some of you have had daughters that have struggled with this, and it's, it's just, it just shocks us. And as a result, because they view themselves in a certain way, they, just, they quit eating. And it's horrific because they, they'll kill themselves. They starve themselves to death. You got a lot of anorexic churches. And they got the crosses and they got the big buildings and they'll walk in with Bibles and they might even quote a verse or two. But if they're not emphasizing, if they're not teaching, if they're not applying, you got a bun bunch of anorexic people they are going to starve to death because you can't live without this book. You can't. Uh, you can't grow without this book. You can't mature without this book. You can't become a better man without this book. You can't become a better husband. You can't become a better father. Um, you can't. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, it's summed up in 2 Timothy chapter 3. A real familiar passage to us. Paul's writing to Timothy. And, and this, is, this is one of those short, uh, oh gosh, this is like, this is like one of these uh, protein drinks you get. You know, it's just jammed with stuff. It's, it's, it's got, you know, 48 grams of whey protein. It's got... Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? It's got all the stuff. It's got, it's got seaweed in it. it, it it's got glucosamine. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's, you read the label. I, 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 I've got some vitamins, and it's got so much stuff in it, in these six vitamin capsules you take every day. It's small print. It's small print. And, and i got to get a new prescription. So when I read it, I go like this so I can read it, and then I noticed on the bottom, it said, of the label on the back, it said peel, P-E-E-L. I said, I thought, peel. And I, so I peeled it, and it came off, and there were more, there was more stuff listed on the other side. And that's kind of 2 Timothy 3.16. It's just jammed, packed, 16 and 17. So what's it say? All scripture, 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, watch this, for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that there's a reason all that stuff is there. There's a reason all these vitamins and minerals and stuff is in there. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you just take the tail end of that thing, we haven't haven't broken it apart yet. But if you just take verse 17 and you see the result, 16 is laying it out. 17 says, here's the result so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Well, 16 is all about the word of God. If you don't have an emphasis in the Word of God, you can very easily and quickly deduce from 17 that if you're not in the Scriptures, you're not going to be equipped. You have got to be in the Scriptures to be equipped for the work that God has for you to do. There are no shortcuts. There are no gimmicks. There's no six-week seminar you can go to. It is a consistent feeding on the Word of God. That's why this church is the way that it is. That's why we're fortunate to have a pastor like Chuck. That's why people come from all over the country on Sunday mornings. There's always people here from out of state. I was speaking in Indiana two weeks ago. And uh, I'm having dinner with some folks. And this one gal says to me, she says, do you know Chuck Swindoll? I said, yeah. She said, you... You know him? I said, yeah. She says, you're kidding. I said, no. No. She said, I listen to him every day. I said, really? She said, yeah. Now, why does she listen to Chuck every day? Because Chuck teaches the Bible. That's why. And she just started talking about, you know, she'd heard this series and all the changes that come in her life. Why? Why? Because he teaches the Bible. His church is built on the Bible. We've all been in churches that talked about, they said they believed in the Bible, but they didn't teach it. They referred to it. All right. Let's break this puppy down. All right? Number one, all scripture. What does that mean? It means all. It means all scripture. All scripture That's Old and New Testament and the Book of Mormon. All Scripture. Yeah, back up is right. There are all kinds of Scriptures out there, guys. Did you know that? There's the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon is not a testament of Jesus Christ. You look at Galatians chapter 1. Just flip over there. Verse 6, Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed." As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Uh, Joseph Smith used one example 
the Book of Mormon, he talks about having an angel appear to him and giving him a different gospel. And if you read the Book of Mormon, it is a different gospel. I, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, a friend of mine, Robert Lewis, and I were talking with two Mormon missionary guys with some college students, and we were having sort of an informal debate, and they, they were getting into their clothes. And uh, very gracious guys, uh, they believed from their heart what they were teaching. And uh, they were a little disturbed that we were there and countering some of the things they were saying. And uh, at the end, the guy gave us clothes, and, and he told why it was that he believed Mormonism. And then he said, and I believe that if you pray and ask God if it's true or not, he will tell you. And I said, well, you know, that's interesting because I did pray and I asked him and he told me it wasn't true. <laughs> now, what do you say to that? It's got to be more than just, you know, because you get different answers. I mean, there's got to be more to it than that. And then we shared out of Romans what the gospel says about how we're justified by faith. And I'll never forget his response as we went through that. He listened. He listened to the fact that we're saved not by works, but we're saved by the grace of Christ. Christ went to the cross. Christ paid for our sin. The last words that Jesus uttered was, it is finished, which can also be translated paid in full. And as we said at Tom's memorial service on, on Monday, that when you committed a crime against Caesar and you were charged and you were sentenced, there would be a certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you. Colossians talks about this. Uh, let's say you were sentenced for th for, to jail for three years for stealing and you owed Caesar three years, so they would put you in jail and then they would take that certificate of debt, they'd take that paper and they would uh, nail it to the door and you'd serve your time and when you came out, before they released you, you'd go to the court clerk, and he would take that certificate of debt saying you owed three years to Caesar for stealing, and he would take a stamp, and he would stamp on that to telesty. And to telesty means it is finished or paid in full. See, when it's paid in full, it's finished. You've paid your, your, you've paid your crime. Jesus uttered to telesty. And because Jesus paid for my sin when he was on the cross, past, present, and future, it's not works that I do. It's the grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ. I'll never forget the Mormon guy saying, I'll never forget that Mormon guy looking at me and saying, that's incredible. That's what he said. He'd never heard that before. You know what he was saying? He was saying, he didn't use these words, but here's what he was saying. He was saying, that's amazing. That's amazing grace. It was so amazing he couldn't believe it. But see, that's in this book. This is the testament of Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God. And when we say that, we talk about, when we say it's inspired by God, the, the word there literally means all Scripture is God-breathed. Now think about this with me. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's not that God breathed in, it's that God breathed out. Sixty-six books in here, bunch of different writers. 
the Spirit of God used these men to pin the words of Scripture. Flip over to Second um, Peter. I'll show you something that's very interesting to me. You got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament. Uh, Peter saying in 2 Peter uh, 3, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, he's talking about the coming of the Lord, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now watch this, watch this. Just as, our, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, this is Peter referring to Paul, Just as uh, beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in, the, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort. Now watch this. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. That's fascinating to me. Peter is acknowledging that what Paul wrote was scripture. So, all Scripture is inspired by God. And what we believe is that as those men penned those original documents, those were inspired and they were without error. That's what we believe. Because it's God-breathed. And was there a human instrument? Yes. But is God not able to watch over his word and to keep his word pure even as a human instrument writes it? Yes. So when we refer to the fact that we believe the Scripture is inspired and without error, we're talking about the original documents. You say, where are the original documents? We don't know where they are. You say, oh, what do you mean we don't know where they are? Well, we don't know, we don't know where they are. Well, what about this? Well, we, we basically have copies of the original documents, but we don't have the original documents. We got the original Constitution in Philadelphia. You say, well, wait a minute, we don't have the original? No. Well, does that present a problem? Actually, it doesn't. Because the way we're wired, if we probably had the original documents, we'd build a church around it and people would be worshiping the paper. We don't worship the paper, we worship Christ. You say, well, that's got to be a problem because it's not a problem. If you ever want to read some interesting stuff, uh, read a, there are different books out there. Uh, Geisler and Nix wrote a book called How We Got Our Bible. And it talks about the process that God used to preserve the scriptures. You say, well, we have copies? Yeah, we have copies of the manuscripts. And there's a whole, you go down to Dallas Seminary, and they'll teach a class to you called textual criticism. And you read about the history of the text and the, and the history of the manuscripts. And you go to the British Museum, and they have all these manuscripts. And, and you have guys that spend their whole lives, and they're, and they're discovering, and they're looking at different texts and comparing different texts, and... And in their outfits that are liberal, like the Jesus Seminar, and they say, oh, well, you can't trust those texts. You can't trust the Bible. You can't. Um, man, I, w I wish we had three hours to cover this stuff. You ever hear anybody quote Plato? You ever hear that? You hear Plato quoted all the time. Do we have Plato's original document? No. No, we don't. But when someone quotes Plato, do they say, oh, you, you, it's full of inconsistencies, errors, and, you know, it's... They ever say that? I never hear that. I, I never hear that. Do you know... Uh, well, all, but all we have are copies. 
By the way, you know how many copies of Plato's manuscripts we have? Seven. Seven. You know how many copies of New Testament manuscripts that we have? You want to read another interesting book? A little book by F.F. F. Bruce called Are the New Testament, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? Seven manuscripts of Plato. New Testament, 13,000. 13,000. And they compare them to make sure. Um, I got so much stuff here, it's ridiculous. I just tell you guys, we're going to be here till 12 tonight. That was three guys that said Amen. <laughs> Those are the guys that stood up for me in the beginning. Yeah, maybe there were just two, come to think of it. Uh, you know, something pretty wild happened to me. First time I went to Israel, we were staying in, uh, when you go to Israel, they, you know, you take the tour and all. It's, it's, it's really a, a great trip. But we were at Tiberias, which is on the Sea of Galilee. And there was some problem with our hotel. And they usually have you... Uh, at this hotel that's right on the water there at the Sea of Galilee. But there was some snag. So they had to move us up the hill uh, about a mile and a half to a hotel up on the hill. So that's where we're staying. And the next morning, they put us in a van to come back down to meet the bus. So we're coming down the hill, real windy, you know, a lot of traffic, a lot of donkeys, and there were. So we're going real slow, and I'm just kind of sitting there in the van and thinking, you know, we'll get down there, grab some eggs, and and it's just stop and go, it's just stop and go, you know. And I look over, and there's like a building there, like a kind of a school, and I'm just sitting there thinking. And, and uh, we move a few more feet, and we move a few more feet, and uh, I look over, and I take another look, and I take another look, and I thought, this is wild, and and it was a synagogue. And they had the doors open because it was July and it was hot, and they had the windows open. And you know what I see in there? I see these men in prayer shawls, these Orthodox Jewish rabbis with their ringlets and their little hats and their little deals right here. And I'm looking at these guys, and we're, we're barely moving, and I'm just looking. You know what these guys are doing? They're copying. They're co- I wasn't sure what they were copying. Probably the Talmud, but they're making, and I'm watching these guys, and I'm watching these guys, and I'm thinking, this is this is a blast from the past, and they're and they're just they're so focused and they're so minute and they're just they were so, I thought this is nuts, and then I thought, I'm in Tiberias. Now you say, what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal about that. Um, the Masoretes accepted the laborious job of editing the text and standardizing it. I'm quoting from Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and his whole section on how we got the scripture. Uh, the Masoretes, there's something called the Masoretic text. So they accepted the laborious job of editing the text, the biblical text, and standardizing it. Now catch this. Their headquarters was in Tiberias. That's why it hit me this day. I'm standing there I'm in Tiberias, and these guys are still copying the way they've been doing it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He goes on and says, 
The Masoretes were well-disciplined and treated the text with the greatest imaginable reverence and devised a complicated system of safeguards against scribal slips. So they didn't just pass out Bibles or say, hey, go make 40 copies of this for me, will you, on the Xerox machine? They had to make copies. So Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. They got one copy. So they got one manuscript. So what do they do? They make copies. Same thing with the Old Testament. Now watch this. These guys, once again, developed a complicated system of safeguards. You say, why is this a big deal, Steve? Because this comes down to whether or not you can trust your Bible. Now, now check these guys out, how careful they were. They counted, for example, the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurs in each book. They pointed out the middle letter of the Pentateuch and the middle letter of the whole Hebrew Bible and made even more detailed calculations than these. Everything countable seems to be counted. At the end of the day, they, would, they had the text they were copying. They would count each line and check themselves. Line one, how many words do you have? 17. Everyone got 17? I got 16. Let's go back. What do you mean you got 16? There's 17. They'd go back and check it. They'd count every word. They'd count every letter in every line. How many letters you got? 64. There's 62 here. Long story short, um, God breathed out his word and God gave us his word. And we, got, we have men who have devoted their lives to making sure that it's a trustworthy word. Uh, are there scribal errors? Yeah, and they know where a lot of them are. Do they affect doctrine? No. That's why it can be trusted. It doesn't affect anything in the message. That's why they keep going back and doing archaeology. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were such a big deal, because they could compare, and it just fit. Okay, i got to move. So, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, all right? Now, because God has given us this Bible, because he's given us this Bible, I want you to notice the effect that has on your life and my life. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, watch this. And profitable. Profitable. Profitable is a word that they really like on Wall Street. And they're a little nervous on Wall Street right now because they're not as profitable right now as they've been in the past. And so you're following this, and you got Bear Stearns, and you got Greenspan, and this other guy, and whatever his name, Bernanke, is that his name? Uncle Ben. Uncle ben. No, that's interesting. Is that what you're calling? Good. Um, I read something about him the other day that his specialty, his PhD, was in the depression and what caused the depression. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I, I imagine he's sleeping really well every night these days. Uh, profitability is a big thing on Wall Street. Uh, this says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It's profitable. Why is Scripture profitable? There are four reasons. Four things right in the text. The first one has to do with what we believe, and the next three have to do with how we live. Now watch how this works. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, number one, for teaching. That's what we do. We teach 
the scriptures. When we teach the scriptures, what are we doing? We're teaching doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine, a doctrine is a fact. A doctrine is a, is a truth. The scriptures say, come, let us feel together. Is that what it says? It says, come, let us reason together. So we've just come through Easter. What's the big deal about Easter? The big deal about Easter is that we believe certain things to be facts. And as we've already alluded to, if you can disprove the resurrection, if you can show that the historical, physical resurrection of Christ didn't take place, you have absolutely obliterated Christianity. What's amazing to me is that you have churches that don't believe in the resurrection that have people coming on Sunday, large, liberal churches. What the heck are you doing? If he didn't come out of the tomb, why are you going to church? Why don't you just go ahead to the, to the buffet? I mean, why waste your time there? That's, that's what Paul's saying. If Christ didn't come out of the tomb, listen, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Teaching what? The truth. There is a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We hold certain things to be true. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's nonsense unless it's true. We, we, and it was predicted hundreds of years before the fact. We believe he was born in Jerusalem. Oh, no, oh, that's what the Book of Mormon says. He wasn't born in Jerusalem, although the Book of Mormon says he was. He was born where? In Bethlehem, as the scriptures say. Those are facts. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross. If I went to the cross, if you went to the cross, it didn't mean anything. He had two other guys on the cross that day. Didn't mean a hill of beans. But he lived a sinless life. That's a fact. He died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose. That's a fact. That's doctrine. And if you can disprove any of it, the whole thing goes down. The, all of Christianity is based on the resurrection. Hey, guys, if it's not true, we're, go buy a boat and go skiing on Sundays. We're just wasting our time. We're... That make any sense? Okay? There's a reason we believe us. He, he appeared to over 500 at one time. One of the greatest things, I, 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 love, I love Chuck Colson. And, and Chuck, in one of his books, talks about the, the whole thing, the whole conspiracy theory that the disciples, you know, they're always trying to say it wasn't real and it didn't happen. And, you know, oh, there's a conspiracy theory. Or there's the swoon theory. Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He just swooned. Well, Mel Gibson put that to rest, didn't he? Just how they beat him before he was on the cross. And he didn't swoon. Oh, they got together and, you know, they, it was a conspiracy theory. He really didn't die. And, you know, they took his body away and they didn't know about it. Uh, I love what Colson says. He says, hey, you, you talk about conspiracy? He says, I know what it is to be a part of conspiracy. <laughs> and you know what's interesting about that? He says, although Colson really wasn't part of the conspiracy, but, but you know what he says about that? The problem with the conspiracy, guys get together and say, we're going to say this. All it takes is one guy to cave. And John D. caved. And then the whole thing started going down. 
You see? None of these guys caved. Why? Because they saw him. All right, now watch this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. What do we teach? We teach doctrine. We teach truth. Now, note the next thing. Scripture is also profitable in my life for reproof. What does that mean? It means that Scripture is profitable. To be reproved is to be convicted. Have you ever been reading the Scriptures? I I start my morning reading the Scriptures. That's what I do. I learned that from my dad, and he learned it from his dad. So I start with the Scriptures. I I carry this little calendar in my Bible. Uh, It's just a calendar I use, and by reading four chapters a day, I read through the Bible every year. And sometimes I read ahead, because I'm going to be traveling. Sometimes I get a little behind, so on a plane, I'm reading through. But this is what keeps me going, besides my other study. i got to do that. So I start with the Scriptures. The president every day has a briefing. Every day, he has a morning briefing. Well, I need a briefing every morning with my commander-in-chief, because I'm going to be lied to for the rest of the day. So I start with the Word of God. And... uh, and a lot of you guys do too. And some of you guys say, well, I'm not a reader. You know what's great if you're not a reader? They got the Bible on CD. And, and you live in Frisco and you work in downtown Dallas. That's a nine-hour commute one way. <laughs> you can listen to the Gospel of John while you're locked up on the tollway. Even if you're not a reader. You see? Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. I can read it or I can hear it. You see? But I put it in my heart and I put it in my life. Sometimes in the morning I'm reading the scripture and I'm just reading along. And you know what will happen all of a sudden? I'll read something and I go, gosh. And you know what happened? I just got reproved. I just got convicted about something I said the night before or something I've done. Or, say, I'm reading the scripture. I'm just reading along, and I'm just reading my scriptures, and all of a sudden, gosh, I wish that wasn't in there. But see, I need it to be in there. Because that's how God ministers. See, that's to my prophet. That's to my prophet. That's to my prophet. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The Bible says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. You see, uh, when I'm reading this book from time to time, this book will reprove me and this book will convict me and the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to say to me, you're doing wrong. You're doing wrong. And you know it in your heart, don't you? Now, you know what? That's to my prophet. I need people. You know what? Uh, do I have this here? No. I, I thought it might have been the actual. Uh, Tom Hickman, uh, his wife, Lisa, gave me an email from a, a young man Tom had mentored over the years. And the gentleman wrote, was writing about Tom and how Tom had made an impact in his life and had stayed in touch with him. And uh, he, he said three things in an email. 
he said, we, we would have these conversations, and he said, oh, my dad died when I was a little boy, so I really didn't have a father, but Tom was like a dad to me. And then he said this. He said, we, we would oftentimes, when we were closing the restaurant, we'd have late-night talks, and he didn't always tell me what I wanted to hear. Now, there's a friend. He didn't always tell me what I wanted to hear. But it was the truth, and it was real. So we all need that in our lives. Uh, the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I, I, a real friend will tell you what you don't want to hear. And you know what? There's no friend like Jesus. And he'll use the word to say, Steve, Steve, Step away from that. And then note the next thing. He doesn't just convict me. He doesn't just reprove me. What's the third thing he does? All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof. What's number three? For correction. You see what happens? You see what happens is I get off. I'm over here. I shouldn't be over here. As I'm starting to go down the wrong path, what does the Scripture do? It reproves me. It convicts me. Now I'm off the path. But it doesn't just convict me and tell me that I'm on the wrong spot. It then, the scripture then corrects me and brings me back to where I need to be. Uh, what is Psalm 23? Uh, uh, is it th- verse 3? Um, uh, you restore my soul. You lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What do we do sometimes? We peel off the path of righteousness, don't we? What does the old hymn say? We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. So we're going astray. He uses the word to convict me, to reprove me, but he doesn't just leave me there. He doesn't just put a guilt thing on me. He then corrects me to get me back where I need to be. Do you guys see why? The enemy doesn't want us in the Bible. Do you see why he's not interested in your interacting with the Scriptures? Do you see why he doesn't want me in the Bible? I'm always, when, I go to, when I go to get my Bible, I'm almost always diverted. I'm almost always distracted. I'm, I can, sometimes I'll go... Um, Sometimes I'll go down and get some eggs at McDonald's or at Corner Bakery. And, and everything's okay. And, and, and here's what I do. When I order eggs, uh, I don't start reading my Bible. I, I, I always try to read my Bible first. And usually before I get there, I've read my scriptures. But sometimes i got some stuff to follow up on. But I need some protein, so I go down and get some eggs. And by the time I order the eggs, and it's going to be about four minutes, so I don't start with my Bible at Corner Bakery. And you know why? Because I'm going to be interrupted. So I'll grab the sports page or something. I'm just reading, waiting for my eggs. And then once I get my eggs, and I've eaten, um, there's a methodology to this. I've really thought this through, and I'm just sharing my life with you. Uh, then, if I, then I'll open my Bible, because I'm not going to be distracted. But I'm going to tell you something that's really interesting. I got my eggs, I got the whole thing. I'm fine, everything's good. I'm telling you, I open up that Bible and something distracts me. Two women sit in the booth next to me. Or some kid sits next to me and he's got his 
cell phone and everybody in six blocks can hear this kid talking. It's just amazing to me. If I'm going to open up my Bible, something's going to happen there to distract me, and I wasn't distracted before I opened it. Now, can I prove this scientifically? Yeah. (laughs) I just haven't taken the time to do it. I'm just telling you, it happens all the time. Why is that? He doesn't want me interacting with his book. Because you see the profit it brings to me? So then you get busy, and oh, i got to leave, and I don't have time, and you go through the whole, I'll do it later, and you don't have time, I'll do it at lunch, you don't have time, something, the whole day, you're... You didn't happen. Then it says here, uh, fourth thing, you guys still there? Still with me? It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. The teaching is a doctrine. The reproof has to do with my behavior. The correction has to do with my behavior. Reproof, wrong behavior. Correction, get back on right behavior. And then four, is also my life and my behavior. Training in righteousness. It's the term that's used for training a child. Because you see, when we come to Christ, we're born again, and we're babes in Christ, and the whole goal is to become a mature man in Christ. So how do I become a mature man in Christ? I become a mature man in Christ by interacting with the Word of God, learning the Word of God, putting it in my heart and mind, and learning to apply it. A lot of us were raised in churches, and on Sunday morning, the pastor was always giving an evangelistic message. I grew up in a church, and every Sunday, the pastor was speaking to unbelievers. Every Sunday. Believers, unbelievers. He's preaching to God. Every Sunday, he's preaching to unbelievers to come to know Christ. The problem with that is, that's not how Christ has instructed pastors to operate in their churches. Turn over to Ephesians 4. You say, what do you mean? Pastors aren't supposed to preach the gospel? Well, watch this. Of course they're supposed to declare the gospel. But there's a methodology that the Lord has for the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, and he gave some as a pot. Who's he? It's Christ. And he gave some as apostles and prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, why did he give pastors and teachers specifically? Watch this. Now, all of these gifts are necessary, and all of these gifts have different functions. But watch this. Some as pastors and teachers. Watch this. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. You know what pastors are supposed to do? Hey, on Sundays when the church is gathered, you know what a pastor is supposed to do? He is supposed to focus on believers. A pastor's job when the church is gathered is to equip the Christians. A pastor's job is to equip the saints. A pastor's job is to break open the vitamins and the minerals and the prime rib and the mashed potatoes and give it to the congregation. The primary job of a shepherd in Israel was to feed the flock. So a pa- Now, what happens when a pastor is preaching every Sunday to non-Christians, to non-Christians, to non-Christians? Well, what's happening to the believers? 
They're not being fed, and they don't grow. But see, now, notice the wisdom of this. But if a pastor, if, and by the way, you can be teaching the Word of God to believers, and people will come to Christ who don't know Christ. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. The gospel's on every page. So as you're teaching believers and focusing on believers, there's guys, some guy sitting over here doesn't know the Lord, and God's been working providentially and circumstantially in his life. And maybe that day, uh, as the pastor's here, he drops a seed. And then somebody else is going to water it next week. Or You see how this works? God's providentially working. But the purpose of a pastor is to feed the flock and to open up the word of God, catch this, to equip the saints so that the saints become mature, and then they're gathered. When they scatter, then they're equipped to talk to unbelievers during the week where a pastor could never go. Do you see how that works? No, you don't. Do you see that? It makes sense, doesn't it? But when you, I mean, I grew up in a church every Sunday. I was preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. I know the gospel, but I need to grow up. What that does is you just produce anorexics. That's why we teach the Bible. We want strong people who are nourished that can go tell others the good news of Christ. It's training in righteousness. So, so we learn, we grow, we develop. All right, now, flip over to Psalm 119, would you please? So why are we going to Psalm 119? Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. Uh, it's a long one. It's a big one. You know what Psalm 119 is all about? It's all about the Word of God. It's an incredible psalm. Uh, verse 9. Let's highlight it. I'm not going to hit the whole thing. Just I'm give you a couple shots. Um, psalm 119, verse 9. I've already quoted this one. How can a young man keep his way pure? Did you see the study came out this week? that 25% of all girls between 14 and 19 have a sexually transmitted disease? That is staggering. That's just absolutely staggering. How many lives have been ruined? In this culture, the internet, I was reading something this week about how many Christians allow their children, eight, nine years old, to have uh, TVs in their bedrooms without supervision. In this day and age, hey, maybe when Ozzie and Harriet was around. But in this day and age, you let your eight, nine-year-old, 12-year-old have a TV in their room and you're not supervising them? You say, well, Steve, you're a legalist. You're an idiot. <laughs> you're, you're living in la-la land, man. Are you kidding me? You trust those people? I don't. How'd I get into that? Oh, how can a young man keep his way pure? By having a TV in his room when he's nine years old and watching. Why don't you just put an open sewer in his bathroom and let him drink out of it? How can a young man keep his way pure? Watch this. By keeping it according to what? Thy word. Your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. 
That's 11. Look at 18. Open my eyes and I may behold wonderful things from your law. Sending them for the word. All the way through here, it's the word of God. It's the word of God. Let me jump to Psalm 105. A lot of you guys know this verse. It's a great verse. Let me show you another reason we need the word of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet. This is 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now hold that and think about Psalm 23, verse 4, which says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. All right, now think about that for a minute. And in the Hebrew text there, literally it's even though I walk through the valley of the... It's even though I walk through the valley of, catch this, deepest darkness. The deepest and darkest valley we ever walk through is death. But there are other valleys we walk through in life that are very, very deep and very, very dark. Some of you guys, some of you guys are in a very deep and a very dark valley. There are times when your path is clear. There are times when life is set before you and you've got goals and dreams and hopes and everything's, you're hitting on all cylinders. Things are going well. But there are times when stuff happens to us and suddenly we're in a valley that's deep and we're in a valley that's dark and we're not looking forward to the future because we don't know how the heck we're going to make it through this thing. And we despair because we don't see it changing and we don't see it getting better. I, I was listening to a guy this week talk about in his early years of marriage, it was such a struggle because of his background, his wife's background. It was such a struggle it was, it was so bitterly hard, and they, they had gone to someone's 50th anniversary, and he came home. And they're both Christians. He's a pastor. They come home, and he's at night. He's, he's in bed thinking, I got to do this for 50 years. I appreciated his honesty. It was so gut-wrenchingly difficult. And as he said, so much of it was my fault because I was an immature man. But it, just, it was just a gut-wrenching thing. It was a valley of deep darkness. He couldn't see any way out. Well, and then he talked about how God began to slowly work and change things. See, sometimes we get, he says, even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness. He didn't say even though I go around it or tunnel under it or go over it or avoid it. No. See, there are some guys in here you're in a valley of deep darkness. Now, I want to ask you something. How in the world are you going to get through this valley when life is this deep and life is this dark? Let me tell you how you're going to get through it. The Lord will walk you through it, and he'll use his word to get you through it. Do you see that? Your word is a lamp. When life is dark, what do you need? Because you don't know what's ahead of you. You don't know where to step. You don't know where to go. You don't have any hope. What do you need? You need a lamp. When life is dark, you need a lamp. And you need a light. So you're facing some unbelievable situation you can't believe you're in. Let me tell you something. You keep this Bible open. And you make room for it. And you get up in the morning and you say, Lord Jesus, I need to hear from you. And you get a pen and you start working your way through Psalms or whatever you feel like you want to study. It's the word of God. It's the word of Christ. You start working your way through it. 
And before you read that Bible, you say, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from my law. I need, I need something from you today to get me through this day. I need a lamp. I need a light. Or I'm going to despair. I'm scared spitless. This is how it works. This is real life. And you know what he'll do? He'll do it. He'll do it. You say, well, how do I know he'll do it? Because, because you get back to 2 Timothy 3, and what does he say? All scriptures inspired by God, profitable. Teaching, reproof, correction, training righteousness. Watch this. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The idea of adequate is that you may be capable. Well, you say, I don't feel capable for what's facing me. Of course you don't. You're inadequate. What's going to make you adequate? The word of God. That, the word, that every man may be adequate, equipped. Equipped for every... What does it mean to be equipped? It means to have everything you need for the job. We, we could render that verse this way. That the man of God may be... Watch this. That the man of God may be completely furnished. For every good work. You know what the Lord wants to do? He wants to completely furnish you for what's ahead of you. Well, how does he do that? Through this book. Mary and I got married. We, we met in Oregon. We got married in Atlanta, Georgia. And we moved into our first apor- uh, apartment in Glendora, California. And we were excited. And uh, this apartment building we went into, it was, it was, a, pretty, it was a brand new deal. And we walked in, we didn't have a lot of time to find an apartment because we had to go back to Georgia and get the wedding and all that. We find this apartment, and they had this model apartment. And we walked in, and we just, we walked in this model apartment. It was, it was wonderful. My gosh, it was just, it was beautiful, and the furnishings and everything, the curtains and the chairs and the, everything matched. It was just gorgeous. And we, and we signed the lease, sure, we'll take it, and we'll be back in four weeks and so then we moved into our apartment. And I remember walking into our apartment and kind of looking around. And you know, I got to tell you, I was a little disappointed because um, our apartment wasn't quite like the one we walked through. We had a little Duncan Fife table we bought for 35 bucks from a lady. And uh, we, had a, uh, we had a sofa that I had bought when I was in seminary. And I remember just kind of walking in and being a little disappointed. Because you see, and the reason I was disappointed is that the other apartment was completely furnished. And ours uh, wasn't. And I thought one day, you know, it would be nice to get this thing furnished. And I'm not real big on that stuff, but I, even I thought it'd be nice to get this furnished. Sometimes in life, what's facing us, you say, there's no way I can handle this. There's no way I can... There, there's, you know what? He'll completely furnish you. But I'm going to tell you something. And I want to drive a Mack truck through this. You have got to be in this word. And when he distracts you, if it means you get up a half hour earlier... If it means you don't go somewhere and eat lunch, you get in this book because you can't live without it. And he'll walk you through the valley. And you'll live off the promises. And you know what? Not only will you make it, 
Uh, and by the way, can I say something to you? Do you guys all know we're going to die? You're aware of that? We're all going to die. Tom was here a couple weeks ago. Big guy, great health. Should have lived another 30 years, huh? But at some point, it's going to happen to all of us. But as we've said many times, you can't die until your work is done. We just don't know when our work's over, do we? But until then, he'll completely furnish us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the fundamental truth, the priority of the Bible. Sometimes we revere the Bible, but the enemy keeps us from reading the Bible. Thank you for this reminder, Lord, that you have given us the words of life. It's what keeps us going. It's what nourishes us. It's a fundamental principle we can't live without. Help us to adjust our lives accordingly. It'll get us through. It just flat will get us through. In your name we pray. Amen.